I'm Lige. I'm Kohana. And, and this, this is Straight Ahead. Ahead. Welcome back to another episode of Straight Ahead. We're so excited to be back and to share this next episode with you all. We're also excited to spend much of the next week watching the Glass Animation Festival programs and selections virtually. It's running from the 5th through the 11th of April. The screenings look really incredible and it's definitely worth checking out if you're able to. This week, we'll be sitting down with experimental animator Jeff Scher. Kohana and I met in Jeff's experimental animation class at Parsons, so in a way, this podcast wouldn't exist without him. Jeff, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, okay, uh, my name is Jeff Shear, and I'm in, currently uh, mostly doing animation. I've made kind of all kinds of films, from features to commercials to docs, live action and animation. But animation is kind of you know emerged as my main thing, uh, especially convenient during the pandemic. But also, you know, I mean, my my approach to animation has has always been you know, like a one-man studio. I'm, I'm a painter, and my paintings move, uh, and they, you know, and, and they go out in the context of you know motion picture media, uh, whatever that might be. I started in film, and I've gone digital. Um, don't miss film at all. But um, but but you know, like I love. There's a great Cocteau quote. He says that cinema will never be an art until the materials are as cheap as paper and pencil, and they are now. Wow. You think we've reached that point? Absolutely. It's free. It's on your phone. You already own it. You know, it would cost more not to have it. So that that's revolutionary. You know, the democratization of the materials is really, you know, an essential element in the renaissance of short filmmaking that we're seeing now. You know, it's just as easy to like send a video as it is to send a text. Right. Do you ever use your phone to capture? Images for animation. Yeah, I have a. I've got like probably three different stop motion apps. Um, you know, the, each one has its own quirks. Any uh, that you'd recommend? The one that I like is uh, so many apps. Uh, it's just called Stop Motion, and it has an icon of a movie camera. Of course, simple it's the enough. Blue, the sky blue app, right? With the oh, yeah. white. Yeah. You know, like if you, it's also great to have basically an animation camera in your pocket all the time. I don't know if you've seen this film, but there's a brilliant um, Caleb Wood film. I think it's called Bird Shit <laughs> or some <laughs> some sort of uh, variation on that title. But the entire film, it's just made up of still like photos that he was taking around a park of bird shit on the floor. And he would find very slowly these sorts of animations emerge just from like playing around with the the angle that he was taking photos oh. from or like it's genius but you're right What's there's this Caleb what Caleb Wood I think you showed us one of his or I think the first time I saw one of his films was in your class um he did like Chimera the like oh yeah yeah, yeah sure yeah, yeah. genius oh no, it's great stuff um I have a question actually about I guess about your studio setup just looking at it is also crazy from here but um I was watching this HBO sort of behind the scenes film in your studio setup and about your workflow and what that looks like with rotoscope and everything. And I noticed that while your frames are being photographed in the down shooter, 
that your the animation paper you're using looks like like twelve field paper, but cut so that only two of the three holes remain, sort of like half of the sheet. Is that right. purely like an economic decision, like trying to get two frames out of a single sheet, or is it just a concern with drawing smaller? Or both? You know, it, it, it's both. I mean, for starters, I, I generally when I'm doing uh, intense rotoscoping like like that was I use pretty heavy paper so I'm using you know watercolor paper so it's like you know it's like six bucks a sheet for the big sheets and so if I cut them down the smaller I cut them down the, the less per frame but also uh, you know I, you only need two pegs and and then the other thing is you know when I get tight I just nine by twelve just cut in half mm. so you get two frames out of it you know the, the registration isn't affected and the whole thing with paper is the scale is really irrelevant. So as long as you don't see the paper texture, that that's not an issue, then then you're good. So you use less paint, you paint faster. Um, and then, you know, the other big advantage is you can flip them. You know, when you have nine by 12, flipping is really awkward. But like for a quick check, you just flip the stack and you immediately see like if they're in order or not, like maybe, you know, if the broad effect is working, you know, all the things that you can find from flipping. So it has multiple advantages. Right. Do you have your own hole puncher in this studio? I do. Ah, oh, like an Acme hole punch? I have an Acme hole puncher. Oh, that's oh. the holy grail. <laughs> it's right there. I don't know if you can see it. Um, oh, with the big lever? No, it's, uh, it's this one. Oh, Matt, where did you get this? Whoa. Okay, this, is, this, this is George Griffin's. Wow. Um, you know, he, he gave it to me, uh, I don't know, like five years ago when mine, the one I had before was jamming all the time. It was just, it was a pain in the ass. But before oh. that, I had one that I bought in a, um, I bought from an old animator from the Hubley studio. It was an Acme cell punch and it was magnificent. It took two people to move it. It was about probably about two feet wide and about five feet tall and it worked from a, a foot pedal and oh. it was, um, it went ka-chung and you could cut, you, you could punch like 10, 15 pages at a time, sheets of heavy paper. But uh, it was in my studio. I, I don't know if you know, like my studio was destroyed during Hurricane Sandy. Um, I was in Dumbo at the time and uh, my studio was in a basement and we were on the waterfront and it filled up with to the top with water, 14 feet of water. Oh my God. And um, the cell punch was unsalvageable. Oh, after no. we got it drained out and it just it was iron cast iron and it just rusted into a solid block um there were fish in my ba in my studio oh, like there was a fish about <laughs> that long but it took a while but fortunately you know it was during that moment when a lot of my animation friends were giving up all their equipment so i just inherited a lot of stuff but um yeah and and also like you know at a certain point like i mean i've made so many films i had just boxes and boxes and boxes of artwork. It was just beyond like, I mean, and I had a storage place that, that has uh, had 28 boxes of negatives. That, that's all, that all survived, that's fine. Well, it looks like your studio definitely changed quite a bit moving from Dumbo up to Connecticut, but has it changed at all during the pandemic? Well, the big difference is no interns. So I do everything now. Um, normally I have like, you know, one or two people that come a couple days a week. Right. Um, and uh, you know, it's, once you set up a shot, if there's like a lot of continuous animation, you know, it's not hard to have somebody like doing backgrounds, foregrounds, coloring, inking, you know, that kind of stuff. 
Um, but you know, it's okay. I, I have enough space that I can have, like I've got three drawing stations, so I can set them up each for different shots if I need to. Do you have a preference at all, like the kind of work that you do? I know you do a bunch of different music videos, a bunch of commercial work. Do you have uh, like a favorite, would you say, or do you just enjoy working on all of it? I'm working on my own film, at, and which is exploring something that I'm doing basically to see what it looks like, you know, like I really believe in the idea of experimentation. So the thing that I'm always most excited about is the thing that links directly to what I'm experimenting. with. Like if I've just made a discovery or if I'm like trying to like figure out how a technique works, like you saw the Scots one of the, the one of the road. Right. The, the, like that was, I was playing with drawing on, you know, drawing on, on, on this kind of paper, like these little calculator rolls. Are those the receipt roll yeah. kinds of sheets? But not the receipt ones, because there's two kinds of paper. There's bond paper, which is where the um, there's a, an ink driven, so there's no chemical in it. And then there's the heat transfer one. The heat one's terrible. You can't paint on it. It's crappy paper, and it turns yellow as you watch it. Um, whereas the bond paper is just like shitty drawing paper. And is that the kind where you can like kind of scratch it with your fingernail and it makes a mark as well? That's the heat transfer stuff. That's the heat transfer. Okay. Ah. So, um, so this is just regular paper. It just happens to be 200 feet long, and so it, it's it's very you know it's it's very cinematic. And the the interest was you know in the old days we used to paint on film a lot. So this is a way to paint on film, but to have it be a twice as big, and much more receptive to media. You know, you can ink, chalk, pastel, anything will stick to this paper. Right. Whereas you know film required alcohol-based stuff or something that would penetrate the base. Are there just are there places you tend to go to to source materials from, whether that's a store or a site? And I'm aware that you work with all of these different mediums, but is there sort of a general place that you, you keep going back to just to see? Well, the trick is um, to buy in bulk. <laughs> <laughs> eBay always has somebody selling bulk stuff. And I don't know, I bought a 72 um, ounce, the, you know, the new Liquitex gouache? Yes. This stuff's great. It's really fun. Do you use it for cells? I have a little bit. Um, I mean, I usually use the Acrylla, the Holbein version of acrylic gouache. Like the binder is a little better. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, I haven't really, I've done it a little bit with cells, but, but mostly for backgrounds. Because a lot of my films lately have been nothing but backgrounds. Yeah, so my trick is, and my advice is, like, go on eBay and buy lots. So kind of going back to just the kind of work that you do, um, when you're working on music videos, what's your process like for collaborating with uh, musicians? Like, you've worked with some really big names like Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Joan Baez, and Bob Dylan. So what's the process like for making videos for them and do these people have any say in it or is it more like their team what's your experience with that side of the world of animation been like um it really depends on the artist i mean people you know people hire me because they want what i do so there's a predisposition towards what i'm already doing so the 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 leap is always in the concept like you know what what's the theme going to be what's the pictures how does it connect to the song what you're basically you know you're 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 reinterpreting the song always completely so uh, working with you know like like with dylan i I never met him um but i met i spent some time with his manager 
and um, they, you know, it was it was before the album was released, so they couldn't give me the track. So I went in this back room and they played the album, and I listened and took notes, and then I went home and I thought about it. So I did like a really rough storyboard, like maybe like only five or six panels, just to give a feel for like how it would look. I sent it to them, and they said great. I said cool, and then uh, a month later I, I delivered the finished thing, and they loved it. That's the ideal scenario. L you know, le less than ideal scenario is where they want li lots of little revisions. Um, and you know, you do your best. Uh, the deal also, what's really important too is the contract that you have a like a, a basic contract that that pays for revisions. Like they get one round of revisions, like, and it's always based on, you know, the amount of time that it's going to take and anything beyond that is extra. I just was wondering if you had any other pieces of advice for um, freelance animators sort of about this, about contracts, about how to ne negotiate these terms. You know, it's really important to have it in writing. Because they, they will, you know, not the artists, but sometimes the, the, the management companies can can really like uh, play games. Could you tell us a little bit about how you go about exploring new techniques and experimenting? Because that is such a, a key part of of your work. I'm thinking mainly of like the, the oatmeal tins and, and then that sort of field. How do those ideas come to you? Canimation. Canimation. Yeah, well, I'm glad you guys remember it. The idea was, you know, always all the experiments kind of come from the basic concept of persistence of vision and how thinking about pre-cinema. Um, so like praxinoscopes and zoetropes and mutoscopes. You know, this idea of like the magic when something comes alive, you know, when a painting starts to move is so, is so, is so lovely. So different ways other than cinema to, to explore that. You know, the, the canimation came about by doing loops. You know, the idea that a film can keep repeating itself and painting over itself. So the idea was, I, would, I started out doing paper loops. And then, so, you know, from 24, number 24, you go back to one. So you create these cycles. And the idea was to have these paintings kind of grow. They're moving, but each time they get denser and they get more interesting. So, so the idea was to make a, a loop without paper. And that was the idea of painting on a can. So you go all the way around it. When you don't have a, a, a frame, a specific frame, like a field of paper, but that you have frame, you can have frames within the frame. If I, if I paint a small dot and then crank it up like 10 millimeters and then paint a slightly larger dot and then progressively on like that, not only is the anime and then i'm filming it one for one dot then move it to the next dot so that lines up you know using the uh, onion skinning on dragon frame the program as a way to align it so basically like registering it based on the artwork not on the frame size so like the idea of like reinventing like what registration is it allows you it, that opened up this whole other window of like you know, oh, what kind of, you know, you could have like lots of stuff happening. The, 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 the animation will continue up the frame. If like, if, if like the field of view of the can is like 10 dots, the animation will happen on all 10 dots as it goes up. So you have like a whole, like a ballet of, you know, suddenly you have from one painting, 
you have like this sort of chorus of activity. So on each cycle, you're making these decisions that sort of make the previous loop look slightly different. Not not just in the layering of new animation, but very like in the way that you're capturing the images themselves. Yeah, yeah. and it looks different Amazing. when you when you see it on the screen, which is which is cool. It's like if a yeah. like if Oscar Fischinger and Adam Beckett had met and <laughs> made weave loops <laughs> together. It's, I mean, I really do love the canimations. I mean, a lot of the canimations, I would say maybe all are abstract. And I'm just wondering if you have a preference over abstract versus narrative, or if you ever find narratives within your abstract work. Yes, uh, you know, like I like to switch it up just to keep it interesting. But basically, it's like wherever the fresh idea is, that's where I'm most interested in exploring. So, at the moment, I'm feeling a little bit like burnt out on abstract. I mean, it's good, it's fun, I'll, and I'll go back. But like, I'm sort of refreshing by doing some more figurative stuff at the moment. When you say figurative work, I think what I'm, what comes to mind for me with your body of work is rotoscope. Um, I'm I'm really curious about how you started sort of playing around with rotoscope. And now, um, Lige and I, for instance, like if we're doing rotoscope animation, it's like all quite digital. It's the tracing over like live action footage digitally. There's no sort of projection of the image onto paper. Um, but what's your process like with analog rotoscope or how did you arrive there? I, I, I guess it started in high school with when I went to the library and I was looking at old New York Times on microfilm. And in those days, the microfilm readers were projectors. You, you loaded the physical film into the top of this device and it projected onto a mirror that went onto a screen. And um, the library at one point was throwing out one of these microfilm readers. And so I took it. And when you... Um... <laughs> what a steal. Why not? <laughs> You know, of course, it's like recycling yeah. it. But the, the plastic projection part, you pulled it off and it projected onto the mirror. And so you took the mirror out and you basically had this little portable rotoscope booth where every frame was projected onto the bottom of the box. Wow. So I put uh, index cards in there and that was the first rotoscoping I did. So you kind of modified it to make your own tools for your own purposes. Yeah, yeah, it was it was more like I sort of reduced it, <laughs> so it was stupid enough to do what I wanted. Um, uh, but but it's great. It was I mean like and then the next one I made was with a slide projector, and uh, uh, I cut a gate out of a coke can, and that was great because uh, I could work really big because the brightness of the bulb. And then after that, I started making them from uh, Bell and Hal projectors. You know, because it was always film was the original source always, but when it switched to video, uh, you know, video projectors got really cheap uh, at a certain point. And I mean, you know, they used to be huge and in the thousands of dollars, but you know, they went down to like you could buy them for a couple hundred, and they are small enough to mount on a uh, on a copy stand or like you know on a, on a, on a bracket on the wall. So uh, basically, I worked with digital projection off a laptop. Um, so I'm looking at a QuickTime uh, being projected frame at a time, and it, it works really well. The reason why I still like working on paper is because um, it's friendly, it's familiar. Paper is just such a, you know, like a like a lovely receptive media to work on. 
And, um, you know, and, and, and you can use anything, collage, glue, uh, sand, small rocks. You know, I love the organic interactions that happen on the paper. I remember um, back, back in the day of in-person classes, um, you know, being introduced for the first time in to like pre-cinema animation devices, but in the same sort of way, just having, just playing with all of these different tools and materials to like make new types of animation with like single strips of receipt paper. But um, I'm curious if you have a favorite pre-cinema animation device of all of all of the ones that you love. You know, it's it's I'm torn. It's between the um, a thaumatrope, which is the circle with the mirrors. Um, I'm sorry, thaumatrope is, is a single one. But yeah, I, I was making vertical ones. I still have these. <laughs> I have them sort of stuck on my wall. They're really fun. How, how can but, we explain what this is to anyone listening? So thaumatropes, I guess the best way to explain, if you take like a card and have two images on either side and string or a stick or some sort of tool to rotate the image or the piece very quickly, the two images sort of merge into one and you see the two separate images become right. integrated. The classic example is a, a bird on one side and a bird cage on the other. Right. And then when you flip it, the bird appears to be in the cage. But what I discovered is when you motorize them, I used, I used to put motors on them. <laughs> um, when you motorize them, they transform into sculptural objects. So like a, a circle, when it's motorized, becomes a globe. It's no longer a, a, you know two surfaces. It, it's now you, you read it for the entire circumference and inside is this collision of these two images. And, you know, the other one is the pexinoscope with the mirrors because you're basically making a loop. So, and I, I made some giant ones. What's what's your process like for making giant pexinoscopes? You know what? It's way too much math. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't even imagine. Because the, the mirrors have to be really precise. Right. Yeah. Because if there's anything that's, you know, offset, even by the slightest amount, it makes the animation not look perfect, right? Yeah. And, and also, you know, it has to add up to, to it has to fit in a circle because you're right. bringing a circle up to these sequential planes. Um, I mean, I was using bicycle wheels uh, mounted on iron poles and then building around it with balsa wood and like, not balsa wood, up, like very thin pine. Um, and then, you know, cutting the glass myself, which for every for every three cuts, I get one right. <laughs> Are all the tools you use for that in in your studio right now? Do you go to like a workshop to to do that? Well, I have a barn also, which uh, is pretty awesome. Um, it's not yeah. heated, so you know your visits are short in the winter, but um, in the summer I like move in there for work was. I mean, that's where oh, I have wow. easels and oil paint set up, and all the you know like I have like tools. <laughs> like barn tools or animation tools both both <laughs> of course barn tools are animation tools i'm waiting for your pitchfork film jeff <laughs> on a slightly different line of question um who are just the people that you're admiring right now or looking up to whether they're you know working currently or just have made films in the past that you continue to be in awe of you know, uh, look, uh, you know, my, I, my, my top filmmakers probably change every other day, but um, 
you know, the ones that have most influenced my work, obviously Oscar Fischinger um, and Walter Rutman. Walter Rutman in particular, I find really interesting. Um, do you know his work? Yes. So, um, you know, he was a guy who made commercials and avant-garde films at the same time, which is, you know, they all did in those days. Like Len Lai made commercials, Oscar Fischinger made commercials. Right. You know, it, it, it pays for the studio. Like when you do a commercial, you, you know, a, a good commercial can take you for six months. So you, you know, you're buying your freedom for that, like, you know, window of servitude. And sometimes they're fun, like, you know, occasionally, you know, late, lately more often than not. But um, so I admire them for, for that, for their ability to do both. You know, like I'm really big uh, Saul Bass fan. Um, do you know Saul Bass? The yeah, the, all the title yeah. credits for all the Hitchcock you know, films. Title sequences Incredible. are really exciting. Um, Hans Richter is probably one of the most important. Um, you know, as the guy who like cross-pollinated the European avant-garde with the American avant-garde. Right. Um, you know, Ken Jacobs is an old friend. I really like his work. Um, you know, Kenneth Anger was a huge influence at one point in in the way that like. He made films that, that are like perfect. They're like gems. Like no matter what angle you look at them, they sparkle and dazzle, you know? Um, and, and, and the way like, that, that he was able to give a Hollywood quality of gloss and veneer to a total independent production. You know, that, that, that independent didn't mean like crappy or shabby, that you could be just as visually elegant and profound which, you know, one of my, my big rules is never let a lack of equipment stop you from making your film. Like, there are no obstacles. Like, there's always a way to, to work within your means. You know, sometimes it could be really circuitous, but uh, like in the film days, like in order to afford film, uh, I came up with this, like lots of great scams, but one of them was the Kodak was a sponsor of this film festival the, the Shorts International Film Festival. It was this big glitzy film festival that was shown, it was like in the Lowe's theaters. So they showed the trailers in all the, all the Lowe's theaters. So I made all their trailers for them for like eight years or not eight years, sorry, uh, five years. I made these films where I would go out and I would shoot like 50 films and then I would literally tape them together. So they, you know, one went, went down. So they were like, they were, they were about that wide. There were like probably 15 strips across some of them one and they, they were all like scotch taped together and then i would put like a, a I, would, I would punch with a uh, you know the acme punch 35 millimeter film and tape that to the side and that would be the registration and so i go to an oxbury you're familiar with oxbury's the old animation camera yeah. it's like big as a locomotive but it, <laughs> in, the, in the early days of automation for them they had these like uh, computers that would control the stage. So we'd program the stage to advance one frame at a time. Um, so again, like kind of not unlike the can film, the registration was relative to the size of the film and reinvented for that purpose, but consistent. So it made the whole thing one big movie that would flow down. But in order to make like 15 movies to include in this, and they all interacted like, Sometimes somebody would walk across one to the other and stuff like that. But um, so I, I would Kodak, their sponsorship was they they gave the film for the trailer. 
So I would give them this list if I need 40 rolls of this and 50 rolls of that. <laughs> and they go like, this is a two minute trailer. What the hell do you need like 5,000 feet of film? And, I, and then when they saw it, they loved it. So, so that became a thing. Like every year I would get huge amounts of film. And in the process, I befriended the people at Kodak who were great. Like these guys, they loved film. So Kodak had in, in the Kodak warehouse, they had this back room that had um, stuff that was at one point they, they, they had this problem with the with the edge numbering where like the numbers were jamming or skipping, you know, like their edge numbers on the side of negative. Right. Um, and they change every foot. So they had, I don't know, they had like some absurd amount, like like as tall as you were, like ten feet wide pile of cans of miss of stuff that they couldn't sell because the edge numbers ran backwards. Like didn't matter to me at all. I'll, backwards the same as forwards, as long as the numbers are different. So they just gave me all that stuff. So then I would take that film and I would go to the lab and I would I would go like. If you print my job for free, I'll give you the film and you keep the extras. So it'd be like I mean, my job would be 200 feet, but there'd be like, you know, 2000 feet in the can. So I got the film and the developing for free by working that angle. That's incredible. Um, so our last question for you is what's next? One of my obsessions was, you know, I mean, I, I like, like like the boundaries of what animation is. Um, and then, you know, the other thing is I always wanted to make the world's shortest films, like two frames. Um, I don't know if I ever mentioned that I, when I was in college, I made what I called the world's shortest films. I used to make these two frame films and you drop them into the projector with tweezers. And sometimes they would go through, but most of the times they would catch and burn. And that was just as good to see them melt away in the frame. but. Um, but I wrote this letter to Guinness Book of World Records saying that I'd made the world's 10 shortest films and, you know, was submitting them for their, uh, you know, for their book, basically. And um, and then but but the whole the whole gag was like the letter was the piece, you know, and they all had silly titles, <laughs> like ironic titles. And about 10 years later, I got a letter forwarded from the college from the Guinness Book of World Records on this incredibly beautiful like letterpress stationery that was like, you know, old fashioned airmail, like you could look through it. Um, and uh, it said like, after detailed consideration of my submission, they decided that they couldn't include it because two frames was an absolute. Any, any film shorter than that would be a photograph. And I was so oh. impressed that they were exactly right. I mean, <laughs> so, because it was an absolute and it was non-competitive, they decided not to include it. Right. I, I guess you can't really be disappointed at that answer. No, no, it was totally satisfying and, <laughs> you know, very belatedly completed. Ten the, years. Um, but the um, but but the idea stays with me. This idea of like, what you, can you do with a two frame film? So I've been playing with two frame films, but really, if you think about it, like painting is so painting a, a still image, a still photograph, or a still painting is like weirder than anything else. Everything moves all the time. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's the measure of life that everything is in motion. So this idea of arbitrarily freezing one motion, one moment, and like removing the thing that makes it alive 
you know, still photography is the aberration and the unnatural event. Motion is just so much, you know, we think in motion, we see in motion. It's motion is, you know, motion is like the clock of our existence. I think it's a really beautiful note to end on, but thank you so much. Thank you for so much, taking Jeff. the time to be with us and answer our questions and just chat. Sure. Yeah, so happy to see you. I feel like it's definitely been a minute. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back after this. You're listening to Oh LeBron, a tape demo by Charlie Kilgore. If you listened to our episode with Jeanette and Ali Ali, you may remember his outro tunes from then too. He's based here in New York City and is part of the collective Michelle. They're wonderful and all close to my heart. Check them out everywhere you listen to music. Join us for our next very special episode, which we will release on April 19th with legendary animator Amy Lockhart. Thanks so much to everyone who tuned into this episode and everyone who's been following us along our journey. See you next time on, on Straight, Straight Ahead. Ahead. <laughs>